All right, we are in uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 8, continuing our study. We're jumping back in after all this Christmas <laughs> celebration. Let me pray one more time. Father, we're approaching your word, so we ask for you to bless as we uh, hear the words of Christ, our Savior, and may we take them to heart, Lord, wherever we are in our walk and journey in life, that we would listen to his voice. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so this morning we are picking up this running conversation Jesus had with the religious authorities in Jerusalem, in the temple, the very heart of the Jewish religious system. And these conversations are pretty useful for us because the people he's conversing with are not your average Joe. Joe probably isn't the right name. Joseph's, the average Josephs and Miriams of Israel. The kind of thing these are the leaders so he's talking about the men that represent the faith of israel uh in the heart of israel's faith so in the temple so sadly what we've seen from most of these guys is that they uphold man-made traditions more than they're seeking the truth that's something we all need to be aware of be careful about they should have been ready for the new truth because moses promised a prophet like him would come one day and these men knew that and when he came they didn't like him and that's on them they should have been ready they had built walls around themselves walls of beliefs that were not well founded but vigorously defended and even to the point of of hating those that God sent to them and Jesus actually tells a number of parables about people that do that God sends somebody and you hate them you know and that's exactly what was going on so first God sent John the Baptist the first prophet in 400 years and they hated him then he sends Jesus himself the son and those two men were truth speakers and Jesus was the long promised Messiah he wasn't a mystery man at all in that sense it was pr pretty clear who he is God the creator become flesh born into the world as a savior Jesus came to bring truth and salvation both but they saw him as a threat to the order of things that they had constructed these religious leaders and had been built up before them but um, they were maintaining a, a, a religious system that wasn't based in scripture it was adding to scripture piling on scripture piling on scripture so much that you couldn't see the scripture underneath that's what they had done and you always want to be aware of religions that do that so the teaching of Jesus, um, it's aimed at, their, at the heart, and it's aimed at their hearts. But they would not go there. When Jesus speaks to your heart, you want to go to your heart and evaluate it. But they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. They uh, didn't want to look on the inside. They didn't want their hearts to be addressed. Their purpose was to zealously guard the traditions, and for them, everything had to be measured by that. And so they would not look inside. Even when God sends the Son, they choose tradition over him. So even when the Son does undeniable miracles in their presence, things that John in his gospel calls signs. Signs, what do signs do? They point to things. And all of these signs pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And they, they didn't follow the signs either. So Jesus comes to the temple. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's about a half a year before his crucifixion. And at this feast, Jesus made two major declarations, which we've looked at in previous weeks here. Public announcements, which um, 
you, you couldn't get too much clearer about this. So one is in John chapter 7, verse 37, it, where it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's quite a claim. And that caused all kinds of talk among the people that were there in the crowds in the temple that day. Is he the Christ? Is he a prophet? Who is this guy? Then John chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again saying. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. And then from there Jesus is engaging the Pharisees who challenge him on whether he can make claims like that about himself. Can you bear witness to yourself? That was their big argument with him. We talked about that when we were there. So um, a couple weeks ago. So the back and forth about witnesses leads to a discussion about Jesus' father. Because he affirms over and over again that he has been sent by the father. So in chapter 8 verse 19 they say where is your father? And Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, if they had opened their eyes and opened their hearts and seen him for who he was, they would know that the father is the father of the universe, right? They didn't know the father. Religious men dedicated to their religion who do not know God. And Jesus came to make God known, to really clear away the cobwebs of tradition that had buried the knowledge of the Father. That's one of his tasks in coming. So God is revealing himself in his Son for them, and they are hardened in their hearts against the Son, the Son of God. So today we find out actually why. What, what is their problem? That's one of our goals this morning to explain why they reject Jesus and also I'm also going to deal with another topic today. Jesus is going to explain in the simplest and clearest way why you and I need a savior. Okay he's going to make it really clear so we'll get to that in a second. Has to do with the universal reality of all human beings. We're all heading towards death <laughs> from our this world perspective we're all going to die right death is coming to us all what actually happens when someone dies to them I mean what what actually does actually happen there if you've been in the presence of somebody that died it's a stunning change I mean it's an amazing moment when somebody passes out of this world the, the, a person they're a person and then suddenly they're just a shell and it's just a body. That's all that's left. They're not there anymore. They're real, literally not there anymore. Well, where are they? Where does a person go? That's the question. That is a question science has no answers to. Has no answers to. Can't help us at all. So where do we turn for answers? Well, in every known civilization from the beginning of time, all the way up through modern times. Every single civilization, whether it's a big mighty civilization or 40 or 50 people living in a, in a hut somewhere and hunting animals in a very primitive way, they all believe in some form of an afterlife. Every single civilization always believes in some form of an afterlife. All human beings have that basic need or desire to think that the person that is not here anymore is somewhere. 
All of them. There's no such thing as a uh, materialistic culture. That, that's an ideology that has to be imposed on people. But cultures naturally that grow all, all believe in an afterlife. All of them. Even the most primitive people. It's universal. Most Americans still believe that. I actually wanted to look that up. So I checked on surveys. Only one in six people in the United States believe that when you're dead, you're done. You know, you return to the earth, the worms eat you, and that's it. That's, it. that's about 17% of people that believe that. We're nothing but biological material. You don't have a soul. You don't have anything that lasts beyond this life. So surveys are pretty interesting on the afterlife. 40% of Americans think you become an angel when you die. That may mean that Jimmy Stewart is having a bigger effect on our culture than the Bible, right? They showed It's a Wonderful Life in, the Lan in Lancaster Christmas weekend. Laura and I went and saw it there. It was fantastic on the big screen. But it's not true that every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. And, and Clarence, the, Clarence is trying to earn his wings. That's not true. Dead people don't become angels. Angels are separate creatures altogether. But of all U.S. adults, 73% of Americans believe in heaven and about 50% believe in hell. Even people that are not religious, if you say, what's your religion? They say, well, I'm really kind of a nothing. 50% of those people believe in heaven and 39% of them believe in hell. That's pretty interesting. That kind of surprised me, actually. But that shows that our culture is still influenced in some ways, in a broad way, by the teaching of Christ on these subjects. So for many people, you know, their beliefs are kind of vague. They're just sort of general. Um, our loved ones are in a good place when they die. Um, they watch over us or, or we're going to see them again. Those kind of feelings or ideas. Mo a lot of people have that. Most people believe that. Some people brush off death altogether. Like, doesn't matter. You're done, you're gone. So that 17% that believe when you're, you're, you're dead, you're done. Um, that's pretty common. Mark Twain uh, the amusing author said, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born, and I, ha and I have not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. Now that's kind of funny, except it's not too smart. It's not even logical, actually. He did not exist for billions and billions of years, but he did exist when he lived, and then, then he died. So he's saying it's going to be just like when before I existed, but it's not the same, because you did exist, and you have a a wonderful creative mind. What happened to that thing? It really, it's, it's gone completely? How does he know that once he did exist, that that witty, rational mind of his and that moral soul that he had to care about right and wrong and things like that doesn't continue? Why did he think that? How does he think that? Socrates, uh, before the time of Jesus, the teacher of Plato and Aristotle, he had a more interesting approach. He, he said we can't know from observation whether we continue on or not. Now Socrates, if you remember, was made to kill himself for corrupting the youth by speaking truth to them in Greece, in Athens. But he said no one knows whether death may not even turn out to be the greatest blessing of human beings. And yet people fear it as if they knew for certain that it is the greatest evil. I think that's a really interesting thought on his part. It's kind of perceptive. Why do people think it's the greatest evil and fear it? Why? Could it be that the fear that Socrates saw in Greeks of his day 
knew somehow that death is something to be feared, that there's something on the other side that might not be pleasant for them, and they feared that? Could it be that that fear is well-founded? Maybe. Maybe because death is seen as the greatest evil because we inside, maybe because inside we know we're not really worthy of eternal life. Maybe we know that, and that's one reason death is fearsome to us. We don't know where we're going. Well, in today's text, we actually have an answer from the Son of God himself. So we're going to look at that. The Christian view of death is found in Jesus' words. And he says there's not one final destination, but two that exist. And we all go one way or, or the other. So we're going to look at John chapter 8, verse 21 today which actually follows a, a pause. That's where we, we were having this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then there's a pause because John says in verse 20, he says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So there's sort of a little break there somehow that he makes probably a time break. And then it picks up again in verse 21. That's where we're starting today. So John 8, 21. He said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now if you've been with us, this theme of Jesus going away has been a big part of these temple conversations with these Pharisees and the different folks. Go all the way back in chapter 7, verse 32. Why don't you go ahead and look back there. Um, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. 732 and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him verse 33 therefore Jesus said for a little while longer I am with you see he's doing that again now. then I go to him who sent me so he's telling where he's going you will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come the Jews then said to one another where does this man intend to go and he, that we will not find him? He's not intending to go into the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Verse 36, what is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me where I am, you cannot come? He actually told them, but they're actually not interested in what he said, so we're going to look at why that's true. But in verse 38, Jesus makes this declaration, which really is an invitation to believe in him. Verse 38 of John 7 he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So we talked about that one. Then 8.12 again, the other declaration. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So do you hear the invitation part of those verses? He's inviting people to believe and to follow, which are the same thing. We've talked about in John, it's always believe, follow, and come to me. Those are the three words that explain what you're supposed to do to know Jesus. Believing means following him. Believing means coming to him, right? So it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a commitment of some kind of, of latching onto him and taking him for yourself. So that's it. He who believes in me, 738, 812, he who follows me. So he's in inviting people to do that. Why is he giving them this invitation? Because he says he's leaving soon. Well, again, it's about six months out. So they'd better respond now. That's what he's saying. And in verse 21, he starts again with his going away. 8.21. I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. 
Where I am going you cannot come. So here he's giving the reason that they will not be able to come where he is. Ever. They'll never be able to come where he is. What's he saying? You will die. We will all die. But if you want to be where Jesus is, you must not die in your sins. That's what he says, right? You must not die as you are, he's telling them. Something's got to change. Now people might think, oh, oh, die in my sins. I don't want to do that. I'd better clean up my act. You know, there have been those times when I sinned. Well, more than a few. No, I'd better straighten out my life. Is, is that what he's inviting them to do? Is that what he's inviting them to do? Has that, is, is that, are those the words he says when he's making invitations? Clean up your act. No, it's believe in me, follow me, come to me. That's what he says. Cleaning up your act will not keep you from dying in your sins because you've already sinned. And you know what? You can't clean up your act enough to stop sinning. Anybody here tried to do that and succeed completely? I didn't think so. <laughs> Thank you for the no. You speak, you speak for us all in this room. <laughs> As God defines goodness, none of us are good. None of us are sin free. Well, is there hope then? Oh yeah. There's, there's hope. It's just not in you. It's not in yourself. Remember, Jesus is talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Bible men. He's talking to the religious elite. These are the guys that prayed every day. They cleaned up their act. They prayed publicly even. They tithed everything, 10% of everything. Even their spices, seed by seed. Let's see, I've got 1,325 seeds. What's 10% of that? You know, that kind of a thing. At least Jesus said that's what they did. It might be an exaggeration, but that, they were that careful. Super careful. They did all the washings. They followed hundreds of Sabbath rules. Hundreds of rules that weren't even in the Bible. They just made them up. They never missed the going to synagogue. They went to all the feasts. And they offered all the appropriate sacrifices at the right time. They kept all the little rules required by years and years of tr rabbinic tradition being added onto the Bible. They kept all those little rules. <coughs> so to everybody else that lived in that culture, they were the righteous ones. If anybody's going to heaven, it's those guys. Here's the problem. They believed they were righteous too. Which is the biggest sin you could ever make. All these things. That they did. Did not give them. Humility. Or love. Or a right heart. Toward God. None of those things they did gave them that. None of those things they did. Paid for their sins. If you read Matthew chapter 23, it, it actually, it's the one chapter that blows me away in Matthew, not because it's the most exciting chapter, because it's not the Sermon on the Mount exactly, it's because Jesus spent, that Matthew thought he should spend a, a long full chapter out of only 28 chapters, one of them should be devoted to Jesus blasting the Pharisees. So the whole chapter does that. Woes, he pronounces on the Pharisees. And woe is not how you stop a horse. Woe, it's spelled differently. Woe, W-O-E, means a pronouncing of a curse on people. I want to read you just little bits of that. So this is Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, those are the little spices, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And then verse 25, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, talking about them, right? So that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Tell us what you really think, Jesus. <laughs> they, were, they were full of sin, just like everybody else. And they were actors. The word hypocrite is a Greek word, hypocrites, which means actor. That's literally what the word means. They had Academy Award nominations for best fake righteousness. Best external righteousness when were inside they were full of sin. You don't get to heaven on performance because you can never perform enough to be worthy of it. So you have a record of sin for one thing. A long record. And you still sin. You're actually adding to that record. And you can't be perfect in this life. You do things you shouldn't do. And you feel things you shouldn't feel. And on top of that, you fail to do things you should do. Or should have done. We all have sins of commission, things that we commit. And sins of omission, things that we omit that we should do. Do what we shouldn't and don't do what we should. Well, how can you get to heaven if that's the case? How do we go where Jesus is? That's what he's telling the Pharisees, how to, that they can't go there. So hold on to that question for a minute, how, how you get to where Jesus is. We'll come back to it. But first I want to deal again with these Pharisees not understanding, because that's in the text here. And it's really silly too. When he says he's going away, so verse 22 of chapter 8, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. So this is a much wilder speculative group of Pharisees than the ones in chapter 7 who said, oh, maybe he's going to go to the Greeks and teach the Greeks. These guys are saying, oh, I think he's going to kill himself. Now, I don't know, maybe, you know, in verse 34, Jesus says, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Maybe, he, there was something about his demeanor looking forward to the cross. Maybe there was something in the tone of it that made them think that he's talking about his death. Not that he would kill himself, but that he's thinking about death. Which is true. So this batch of Pharisees is, has a much darker take on him. And maybe they're picking up on something in him that's talking about death. But they wonder if he's talking about suicide. So we're, they're in these discussions, but they consistently miss the whole point of what he's saying. They don't get it at all. At all, really. So their minds jump to things like suicide. Their, their minds are, are like this. 
we hate this guy, so no matter what he says, we're going to take it the worst way possible and, and make him bad out of it. You know, that's sort of the idea. He's going? Where's he going? It must be suicide. <laughs> that sort of thing. So Jesus takes a moment to explain why they don't get what he's saying. It's, it's, it's more than being dense. They're not stupid. These aren't stupid people. It's a failure of spiritual sight, of understanding, even thinking in spiritual terms. You can see how earthbound they are. And although they're religious leaders, their minds are glued to earthly things. And you can see it in how they think and what they talk about. They don't have the tools to understand Jesus. The tools are from God, actually. It's that awakening that the Holy Spirit does. Spiritual truth cannot be grasped by hearts that are in darkness. Rebellious, sinful, <coughs> idolatrous. Look at verse 23. Here it is. He was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So the reality is they belong to two different worlds. When we talk like that in common language, you know, oh, that person lives in another world, right? We say stuff like that. But this is really true here. The one world is corrupted. The other world is perfect. And they're from the corrupted world and Jesus is from the perfect world. The corrupted world is full of fallen men, including these Pharisees. Their vision is restricted by their, their fallen nature. So they can't see the glory of God and the truth of God outside of their very narrow focus there. They're tied to this world and they're thinking. They can only see value in this world even though they believe there's a God and they're religious people, deeply religious people. But they don't live for God. And they don't have God in their hearts. So the Pharisees were immersed in religion but their interests are still bound to this world. They think like the world. Their motives are worldly and they actually have no connection to God at all even though they do all these religious things. Religious activity and behavior doesn't mean anything if you're not rightly related to God. If God isn't first in your heart. But that's why they can so easily replace God's word with man-made rules because God isn't the center for them. And the rules make their religious life palatable and lets them identify themselves as self-righteous. As I am a righteous person because I do this and this and this and this. And they want other people to think they're righteous. Jesus has pointed that out to the, about the Pharisees all the time. They want to be seen by men as righteous. So they do these public things, these detail things, these rule things. They don't serve God because they don't love God, but they use him. They use God to get earthly rewards, honors, special attention, uh, people thinking highly of them. And we know that for most of the Pharisees, the, the reward was to be seen by men as holy, as better than other people. That is my goal, to be seen as be better than other people more holy, more righteous. And that fits perfectly with how John talks about the world, worldliness, all through his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 10, what he introduced Jesus this way. He says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. He created the world, and the world did not know him. Chapter 7, Jesus spoke to his brothers. Remember that? 
his unbelieving brothers at the beginning of chapter 7. He says, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it, testify of it that its deeds are evil. So the world is comfortable with those who think like the world, but the world does not love those who live for God. And they thus certainly doesn't love the Son of God. Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, what? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he tells them, you must be born again. That's why. Later in chapter 3, verse 19 of John's gospel, Jesus says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I don't want God exposing my heart. I'm not going to listen to him. And you can be very religious and do that. Not deal with your inside. Then right back to chapter 8 verse 12 again. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. Those if you follow him. You let him examine your heart all the time. That's how you live your Christian life. Show me my sin. Help me understand where I'm failing. Show me the right path. That's what I want. That's all I want. That's my passion. But without Christ, men are in darkness. And they can't even see. That's a universal reality of human nature. It's the condition of man. Unless God intervenes, we are lost and without hope. Okay, back to chapter 8, verse 23. Here we go. So here are the Pharisees in 8.23. They are from below, Jesus says. They're of this world, Jesus says. And Jesus gives these men fair warnings. Stay on the path you're on and you will die in your sin. That's what he's telling them. If if there's not a change that happens to you, you're going to die in your sins. That means, what does that mean, die in your sins, right? That means you will receive the just and due penalty for all of your sins on judgment day. That's what that means. You will receive what God has determined for your sins. Not just physical death, that's not dying, but spiritual death. Separation from God is what that means. So when physical death comes and you pass on, the door of heaven will be shut against you if you die in your sins. That doesn't mean you die in the middle of a sin. Oh, I was throttling this guy and I died. Oh, (laughs) Yesterday I wasn't throttling anybody. I could have died then. No, it's not talking about that. Not talking about that kind of thing. It's talking about your sins have not been dealt with. No atonement has been made for your sins. That's what he's talking about. They're on you, all of them. Everything you've ever done is on you when you're facing God on judgment day. So the door to heaven will be shut and no pleading that you do will open that door at that time. It's over. Tears will not avail with God in the judgment. It's too late. 
So this life, this life determines our destiny. Jesus himself said that the words he will say on that day, Matthew chapter 7, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. And he'll say that to religious people too. If they didn't know him. Tragic, tragic, horrible, sad. But God has done an amazing thing. There is an out. There is one way out of that experience of dying in your sins. And that's believing in Jesus. Unless you believe that I am he, he says, you will die in your sins. And John's whole gospel is built on the necessity to believe in Jesus. The entire gospel is all about that. Because he is the savior that God provided. We can't save ourselves because we're guilty. Nothing can take away the guilt unless it's paid for. And all we can do for salvation is to believe. Believe that I am he, he says. Now that phrase, I am he, you could translate it. In fact, the actual just literal Greek words are believe I am. Unless you believe that I am. Now, in the Greek language, you can, I am, does that sound familiar? <laughs> That's what God's name, name is, right? Moses said, they're going to ask me what your name is. What's your name? I am. That's my name. So that's the name of God. But in the Greek grammar, you, it, when, even though it just says ego e me, I am, you can supply in ordinary language, you would supply the word he. I am he. So it could be either way. He could be a reference to his deity or he's just saying, I'm, I'm the one that's been sent. I'm, I'm the savior of the world. I'm the light of the world. So like verse 23, I am from above. I am not of this world. He's not a normal human being. He's from heaven. So that's, who he is back up to verse 12 I'm the light of the world he's the light to everyone verse 18 he's the one sent by the father so believe that he is the sent one from heaven at this point in history that's really all they have to believe that he's the one sent by the father he's the savior he's the light of the world just believe what he says that's all that's being asked at this point the cross hasn't even happened yet so it's not about believing in his death on for your atonement your, the atoning for your sin and all that that's not there yet all they have to do is believe in him for as he's revealed himself it isn't time yet to for people to trust in his sacrifice he hasn't even brought that up it's not that and in fact the sacrifice of Christ as key as it is as central as it is is not the object of our faith the object of faith is always the person of Jesus so you can do that at any time before the, his sacrifice or after his sacrifice. His sacrifice is going to be applied to you. It's always his person. When you have him, when you put your faith in him, when you come to him, when you follow him, everything he's done for you is applied to you by faith. So just believing brings all that to bear. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. But to the one who does not work, work for your salvation he's talking about, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, believes in what? Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith, the faith of the person that puts their faith in him, their, his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay, so I, I'm going to read that whole sentence again because I just interrupted it a bunch of times. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So believes in what? Him. 
That includes what he did, but you're primarily your faith is in this person, Jesus Christ. If you don't have the Savior, there's no salvation. So faith in him is credited. Some translations in Romans 4 or 5 say counted as. Uh, but, you know, have you ever opened a bill and you're like, oh my gosh, I got another bill. And it says, you've been credited with $100 or whatever. You know, it's got a credit instead of a bill. You kind of make a little joy there. It's a little happy <laughs> thing. It's like, whoa, I got a credit. Well, Jesus' righteousness is perfect. And when he died for you, he took your sin upon himself. And his righteous, perfect life is credited to you. So when you stand before God on judgment day, your sins are paid for by him completely. That's the gospel. How do I get that credit to my account? I believe in him. I put my faith in him. I come to him. I follow him. That's how. If you don't have the Savior, there's no salvation. But if you have faith, his righteousness is credited to you when you believe. You know, we started this morning talking about death with some quotes here, Socrates and Mark Twain and people just guessing. To most people, death is a mystery, right? But not to the believer. What will it mean for you? If you're a believer in Christ, it means that heaven is right around the door. And when you slip out of this world, that's where you are. You're with him forever because your sins have been paid for. You will not die in your sins. You will die in his righteousness. That's what that means. Martin Luther said something about death that I think makes is kind of a thoughtful idea here. He says, every man must do two things alone. He must do his own believing and his own dying. I think that's true. And the condition of your heart when death comes is in your hands. Are you going to put your faith in Christ or are you going to just rely on your goodness? You got to choose. You got to choose. Choose Jesus because God sent him to save you from your sins. So choose Jesus. And then when death comes, it's nothing to fear at all. You can be way more sure about that because of what Jesus did than trusting in anything else. Let nothing keep you from him. Nothing. Let God deal with you. Everyone either dies in his own sin or dies in the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness is received by faith in him. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, Jesus has told us exactly what we need to hear. Human beings, because of the fall of man, because of our own personal wickedness, because we do things that are wrong and we fail to do things that we know we should do, we stand guilty. And you have sent the perfect Savior into the world to erase that guilt and grant us new life. Help us to see into ourselves the reality of our condition. And then let us see Jesus, the perfect Savior, the one who accomplished everything that we need to have done for us. Our advocate, our righteous one who gave his life for us, bearing our sin upon his own body so that we could be forgiven freely and completely in your sight.
We thank you for him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.